I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop. Please join me in a very warm welcome to Carl Uberknausko and Andrew O'Hagan. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you, Claire. And uh, it's great to see so many of you. I, th I think uh, I can depend on the fact that, like me, you feel these books are full of an enormous humanity. And I'm looking forward to having 45 minutes of conversation with Carl Uwe on them and then going to you for questions. So start preparing uh, your questions now. Um, but before we get into our conversation, I asked Carl Uwe if he'd be happy to read uh, from from one of the books, and uh, we've chosen a passage, so he's just going to do that directly. So let's just get into that. Carl, over if you'd like to. Once I had been to a party in Stockholm at which a boxer had been present. He was sitting in the kitchen. His physical presence was tangible, and he filled me with a distinct but unpleasant sensation of inferiority, a sensation that I was inferior to him. Strangely enough, the evening was to prove me right. The party was hosted by one of Linda's friends, Cora. Her flat was small, so people were standing around chatting everywhere. Music was blaring from a system in the living room. Outside, the streets were white with snow. Linda was heavily pregnant. This was perhaps the last party we would be able to go to before the child was born and changed everything. So even though she was tired, she wanted to try and stay there for a while. I had a drop of wine and chatted to Thomas, who was a photographer and a friend of Geir's. He knew Cora through his partner, Marie, who was a poet and had been once one of Cora's instructors at Biscop's Arne Folk High School. Linda was sitting on a chair pulled back from the table because of her stomach. She was laughing and happy. And I was probably the only person aware of the slight introversion and faint glow that had come over her during these last few months. After a while, she got up and went out. I smiled at her and turned to my attention back to Thomas, who was saying something about the genes of redheads so prevalent here this evening. Someone was knocking. Cora, I heard, Cora. 
Was it Linda? I got up and went into the hallway. The knocking was coming from inside the bathroom. Is that you, Linda? I asked. Yes, she said. I think the door lock has jammed. Can you get Cora? There must be some sort of knack to it. I went into the living room and tapped Cora on the shoulder. She was holding a plate of food in one hand and a glass of red wine in the other. Linda's locked in the bathroom, I said. Oh no, she said, set the glass and the plate down and dashed out. They conferred for a while through the locked door. Linda tried to follow the instructions she was given, but nothing helped. The door was and remained jammed. Everyone in the flat was aware of the situation now. The mood was both amused and excited. A whole flock of people were in the hall giving advice to Linda, while Cora, flummoxed and anxious, kept saying that Linda was heavily pregnant. We had to do something now. In the end, the decision was taken to ring for a locksmith. While we waited for him, I stood by the door talking to Linda inside, unpleasantly conscious of the fact that everyone could hear what I said and of my own helplessness. Couldn't I just kick the door in and get her out? Simple and effective. I had never kicked a door in before. I didn't know how solid it was. Imagine if it didn't budge. How stupid would that look? The locksmith arrived half an hour later. He let out a canvas bag of tools on the floor and began to fiddle with the lock. He was small, wore glasses, and had the beginnings of a bald patch, said nothing to the circle of people around him, tried one tool after another in vain. The damned look wouldn't, luck wouldn't budge. In the end, he gave up, told Cora it was no good, he couldn't get the door open. What shall we do then? Cora asked. She's due soon. He shrugged. You'll have to kick it in, he said, starting to pack his tools. Who was going to kick it in? It had to be me. I was Linda's husband. It was my responsibility. My heart was pounding. Should I do it? Take a step back in full view of everyone and kick it with all my might. What if the door didn't give? What if it swung open and hit Linda? She would have to take shelter in the corner. Calmly, I breathed in and out several times but it didn't help. I was still shaking inside. Attracting attention like this was anathema to me. If there was a risk of failure, it was even worse. Cora looked around. We have to kick the door in, she said. Who can do that? The locksmith disappeared through the door. If it was going to be me, now was the time to step forward. But I couldn't bring myself to do it. Micke, Cora said. He's a boxer. She swiveled to fetch him from the living room. I can ask him, I said. In that way, I wouldn't be hiding my humiliation at any rate. I would tell him straight out that I, as Linda's husband, didn't dare to kick in the door. I was asking you, as a boxer and a giant, to do it for me. <laughs> he was standing by the window with a bear in hand, chatting to two girls. Hello, Micke, I said. He looked at me. She's still locked in the bathroom. The locksmith couldn't open the door. Could you kick it in, do you think? <laughs> of course, he said. 
eyeing me from a moment before putting down his spear and going into the hallway. I followed. People moved to the side as he made his way to the door. Are you in there? he asked. Yes, said Linda. Stand as far back from the door as you can. I'm going to kick it in. Right, Linda said. He waited for a moment. Then he raised his foot and kicked the door with such force that the lock was knocked inwards. Splinters flew. When Linda came out, some people clapped. Poor you, Cora said. I'm so sorry, subjecting you to that. And then Mickey turned and went. How are you? I asked. Fine, Linda said. But I think maybe we should go home soon. Of course, I said. In the living room, the music was turned down as two women in the early 30s were about to read the gushing poems. I passed Linda her jacket, put on mine, said goodbye to Cora and Thomas. My shame seared inside me, but the last duty remained. I had to thank Mickey for what he had done. I made my way through the poetry audience and stopped by the window in front of him. Thank you very much, I said. You rescued her. He blew out his cheeks and shrugged his shoulders. It was nothing. In the taxi on the way home, I hardly looked at Linda. I hadn't risen to the task. I had been so cowardly as to let someone else do the job, and all of that was visible in my eyes. I was a miserable wretch. There is, there is something I had to add here, oh, yeah? because if you have seen the film uh, The Girl with the Dragon, Dragon Tattoo, the Swedish version, there really is a giant in that film. He's the villain. And that's him, that's a boxer. He's the boxer. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and he really is, you know, an <laughs> impressive character. <laughs> that describes brilliantly uh, what you might describe as a, um, a small crisis of manhood. Yeah. I'm moved to ask you, um, Nietzsche's notion um, was that if you, if you didn't have a proper father or if you had a drunk father, yeah. then it was your responsibility to father yourself through life. Yeah. Does that make any sense to you? I really don't know. Um, I think my problem was that my father was too much, you know, too much to handle. So I had to get rid of him. That has been my, you know, project to get rid of his presence inside of me. Because when I grew up, I was uh, frightened by him, and I was always aware of you know, his moods and where he was, and he was always in my calculation, if I should do that, how is it with him, you know? Yeah. And then, uh, when he moved out and, and I became a teenager, that continued, and it still does, you know? I have, still have him inside of me, um, and I found that very <laughs> interesting. And, and this book kind of, that's one of the starting points for this book. His death, you know? Yeah. And, and I'm very interested in identity and in roles and in that kind of things. And at the same time, um, I started, uh, then I was my father myself. And I think I wanted to find out, you know, if I should find out about myself, who I am, why I'm doing these things I'm doing why I could be, you know, raged my children and so on and so on. I had to investigate the relationship to my father and find out who he was, you know. Is there any sense in which writing, especially the first volume in Minkamp, conquered that power that your father had in your life? 
in that sense, is writing therapeutic? Does it conquer the fear? I, no, I don't think so. No. Uh, no, it's nothing like that to write, I think. It's, to write is much more about becoming free of everything, becoming free of what you know. And regarding my father, I had this opinion of him, and I had to free myself from that opinion. And you can't do that in writing. If you, you're right yourself, you know, these ecstatic moments where you are kind of selfless, you know, uh, then, you can, then you are free, then you can write about everything. Uh, and that was why this project is so long, and that was why I write it so quickly, because I, I wanted to get away from the conceptions of people in my life and, and what really happened, and my understanding of my life. I had to, you know, get all that away and, and try to kind of recreate it, but as chaotic as it really is, you know? Does that also mean taking on the responsibility to um, expel notions of loyalty to family and silence and so on. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah, exactly, yeah, that is exactly how it is. And that's very, very dif difficult to do. Um, and you have to, you have to get in a kind of a immoral state in writing. And that's also freedom, you know? If you want to say exactly what you will say, you have to be free. And what restricts you? There's a lot of things that restricts you, you know? Quality is one thing that restricts you. But the, the relationship to other people around you is another thing, and it's extremely powerful. And so my guideline in writing this was, if it's too painful, if I can't go any further, okay, then I stop. But then I have to try to press myself to, to that point. Well, Why, what, can you ask? I mean... Well, that was one of the things <laughs> that a writer I know that you appreciate, Albert Camus, at the very end of The Outsider, Marceau actually says, for the final consummation, and so that I might feel less lonely, it's my wish that I be met with cries of execration, that the hatred, in a sense, was not only expected, but in some sense, wished for. Yeah. Is that sensible? Yeah, very much so. <laughs> I've never got that question. I've never thought of that before. But it's, it's obviously true when, when I hear you say it. How, how hard is it to <coughs> live with, having written the books? Um, no, that's okay. It's, it's, like it's, um, it's like it's over, in a way. Mm -hmm. And they have been defined, and they're much more easy to, to relate to now, for me and for a lot of people involved, I think. But when it was in the making, when it was in progress, it was, it was really, 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 it's the worst thing I've, you know, been in touch with. Because I'm so, <laughs> I'm so, I want people so much that they should like me, you know. And I hate conflict so much. I mean, I am a person, I remember the first time my wife raised her voice to me, you know, and I, I have tears in my eyes, I can't take it, you know. And that was something, the thing I read about has to do with this, you know, has to do with, with uh, being a kind of a coward or, or not, not standing up for yourself, you know. In that sense, it and then, we're, then doing something yeah. like this, that's, that's a nightmare for a person like me, that's the worst, you know, sending out a manuscript, knowing that this, they are going to, you know, hate me for this and be so very angry. And that's what's how, it, how it became. Did you think your, your knowledge of what was happening after the first three volumes made it harder then to write the later volumes? I mean, I know that you tried to close off from the reaction, yeah. but it was filtering through, right? Did it affect the prose? Did it affect the way those later books were written? Very much so. The first two uh, I wrote by myself and they were not published and I didn't know about, you know, the attention to 
to them. So in those books, I'm kind of free, as free as you can be, you know, in a way. And then they were published, and then this, you know, crazy, crazy attention, like the newspapers call every person in the book and want to interview them, and, and so on and so on. And book three, four, five are much, much kinder. I mean, <laughs> and there was a, a reader for the publishing house. She asked in volume five, how could it be that Kalova only know nice people, you know? And, and that's, <laughs> but that's interesting because that's part of the project. This project is, but you know, the relationship between life and literature that goes through the whole, whole book. And here you can see, you know, how life kind of intrudes into the, into, the, into the literature and changed it in a way. But then I had to take the project back in volume six. And that was, you know, by far the toughest thing I've done because then I knew this is immoral and then I knew this is, you know, I shouldn't do this. And I, but I tried because I needed it to be good in the end. Because if not, it would be a completely yeah. failure, yeah. So Bello once wrote in one of his novels that um, death is the black backing on the mirror, the mirror that allows us to see anything at all. And one of the completely arresting things about this series is the, the sense of death all the way through. Um, did you have a strong sense of death in your childhood? Another question I haven't got before. Um, no, no I didn't. Nobody died? Nobody died, no. No, I didn't have, I didn't have that at all, actually. The first dead person I saw was my father. And... Um, yeah. And do you think that in itself created a, what served as a sort of trigger? Because I'm interested in leading you to describe, if you can, how you arrived at this style. Because there was two novels before that, and they weren't in this style. They had their own style. Yeah. This, something happened. Can you have a go at describing what that was? How you just suddenly knew because I know you were trying to write a novel yeah. about your father's death. Yeah. Can you describe that for the audience? Yeah. It's, um, it's like this, that I wanted the experience, I mean, in real life, the experience my, my, when my father died was very intense. And, and um, I knew then, you know, when I was there, he died in the house to his mother and he was an alcoholic and you know everything was looked terrible it was like junkie's nest or something and i hated my father and i wanted him dead and that was i mean my uncle had called us and said you have to come down and rescue your father you know and we said no no he can die you know that was that was my relationship to him and then i come down there when he was dead and i just cried and i, I, I you know, for, for a week, and I didn't know why at all. And then I saw his dead body, and I was... Now this was... But then I, I also think I have to write about this. When I was crying, you know, <laughs> I have to write about this at, at some point. Uh, and maybe four or five years later, I, I tried. Did you keep notes? No, 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 I didn't. Um, and then I started to write, and I... At, being a novelist, I, the natural form for me is fiction, so I, I try to write this as fiction, as a straight novel. And I did that for four years at least. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, and now we're talking about every day, writing every day, mm -hmm. failing, failing, failing. What was the nature of the failure? I didn't believe in the writing. It didn't, you know, match the experience I had. 
was no match. Is it too written? Yes, too written, too, has too much form in it, too much narration in it, too much calculation, because the experience was raw, I mean, and, and as it is in a crisis, you know, it's, it's like, it's only this. And, um, and then I kind of tried about some, to something else I, I wrote. I just tried to write something as it really is, you know. And I sent it to my editor, and he called it a manic self-confession. And he said, Just back off, you know, you, this is... I wrote maybe 20 pages with kind of, this is things I've never said to anyone. But then I, I had this, and I, I kind of, what if I expand this into a novel? So the, the thought was a diary, because I loved diaries, mm -hmm. really loved diaries. They could be completely magic, even if they were very boring, could be hypnotic. What if you combine that? level with a kind of a novelistic um, storytelling level, you know? Had you admired Norwegian diarists in the past? Had you read them through the years? Um, the mo most, you know, that made the most impression of me is, is by a Norwegian poet. He died in the 90s. But he wrote diaries from, I think, 1915 to 1990s. Yeah. You know, it's, it's six volumes. And he didn't move from that place where we lived. He was a, f a little farmer, you know, and he was stuck there, and he was alone. He had no friends, no girlfriends. And every five years, he went to the mental hospital for one year, and then back again, and he wrote poetry. Nothing happened in his life. And it could, should be impossible to read, you know? It's like, today I'm going, you know, and the weather is like this. And, but it is absolutely, you know, hypnotic. I just want to read more and more and more. And it also was a kind of a comfort for me. What was his name? Olav Hauge. I think there, is, um, there, yeah, there are some poems by him translated into English. But, but anyway, I thought, why the fascination? Why the kind of hypnotic quality? And at that time, a Swedish playwright uh, published his diaries, which is a massive, you know, a massive volume. And he writes 50 pages about gardening. You know, it's, it's, it shouldn't be possible to read. And he is depressed, you know, it's even worse. But it still is some, something magic there. Can't and wait. That? <laughs> but I think what it is I, I was so attached to is you feel like kind of a, you're close to another self, you know? Yeah. And that was what I tried to do in this book was to combine it and dramatize it in a way but still keep this very... The thing that you can write about anything, doesn't matter, you could just write about anything. Don't, don't think it's boring, don't think it's, um, you know... And I, and I did, and I, I thought when I was writing it, I thought this is, you know, an experiment, this is uninteresting, this is only for me and maybe not even for my friends, really. Jim, James Wood made the point that um, even when he was bored, he was interested reading yeah. the, the books, and in fact, it makes you think about the subject of boringness in literature. You know, Zola would have seen boringness as a great virtue. Um, you must agree, surely, you know, that you're not easy put off. When you start to describe, you will continue right through. Yeah. Whereas I think many a novelist has a fear about that. Yeah. They'll begin to edit and rewrite down. Yeah. Um, how did you get to the point where you just had the confidence to say, fuck it, I'm going to keep going? After four years of failing, I, I mean, I could, 
I just, I could, I was so desperate and so frustrated, I could cut off my arm just to get a novel, you know. But I, it was very difficult to write, so I was, I, I was, I needed help to, 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 you know, to be able to do it, because I, I felt so bad about it myself. So I had a friend, I called him every single day, I read 5,000 pages to him on the phone. Is he still your friend? He is, yeah. <laughs> But I have, you know, I'm paying to him every day now. <laughs> I have to pay back. Yeah. Uh, but he said, you know, this is good, keep on going. And my editor said the same thing. Yeah. I just needed so much and because I felt this is, so, this is so bad, you know. And I remember, you know, as a publisher that had published my, my translated my, my book before that. And I, I told him that this book, you know, this book really stinks. You shouldn't you stay away from it. And he it, and it did, so he didn't buy it. And you know, you see what's had happened. It's, uh, but that was the image I had of the book, that is, this is, you know, very uncommercial, very uncatchy, very private, all the bad things you could think of. But it was very important for me to write it anyway. And was there ever a point where you achieved clarity early on about whether this was uh, a novel or an autobiography, or did you just not care about those distinctions beyond the I didn't care, no, I didn't absolutely care. But it, there was something very, um, coming very much energy about, you know, writing about yourself very directly and using the names very directly. It was, was, this is a taboo, you shouldn't do it. And that's, you know, there is something coming from taboos. If you do something you should not sure. do. And um, so I was desperate, I just did it. And it's arrived at a time, I think, I mean, maybe at the question period, uh, the audience will pick up on this, but it's arrived at a time when we might have be living through a sort of crisis of privacy we know what's going on about surveillance, a lot of it hidden. And these books arrived and they seem to be so free of the normal proprieties about privacy, about respecting people's privacy, as they say. Um, when you look at this surveillance stuff and see what's going on in the culture, do you have a read on it? Does it have an impact on you? Do you feel a connection to some of these questions that are very live at the moment? No, I have, I'm sorry, but I haven't, you know, I don't have Well, there's no expectation that you should have. It's no. just, I mean, it's a coincidence in a sense that we're, I mean, the world is thinking about privacy in a way, and these, yeah. uh, I think it's so refreshing in a way that you, you read these books, and of course, we don't know the people, so why would we be concerned about whether they were upset or not? Yeah. Course, but it's something that clearly has bothered you and has bothered them. Yeah. Um, so it is in a sense, a constant issue. Yeah. You've said that you're, in a it's getting better, it's, 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 you've got used to it maybe? Yeah, it could be. And it could also be that this wasn't really dangerous, wasn't really threatening, was kind of innocent. And those people who are really wrote, you know, uh, very close to were dead. And I think that's, so the basic main reaction against this book were people who think I gave away, you know, my father and, the, and my grandmother and, mm. and so on. So, so no, but... That's a question, isn't it? I mean, the, the uncle especially, who's so objected to the portrayal of your grandmother, yeah. obviously felt that he had a duty of, uh, and a, a sort of possession of her story. People do. It's a question we a lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. 
But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Often come up against as writers that people think they own their story and think they own the stories of their loved ones. And it's an ethical question that, do you own your life story? Mm. Do you? Does a person, does a human being own their narrative? Or yeah. is it free game? Yeah. No, I was, um, I was very concerned with this. Um, and I, at a point I could decide not to publish the book, you know, uh, when I got this intense reaction and I wanted to stop it, you know. And I, I, I felt that this is their right, this is immoral, you know. This is, I shouldn't do this, this is bad. But then I realized you could, you know, turn it the other way around and, and ask who can, st who can stop me from telling the story of my father, you know, mm -hmm. it's my father. And from then on, I, I, I thought this is, this, is kind of, this is kind of okay. But it still isn't, it's in a gray zone, you know. And, um, yeah. It's very difficult. To what extent is masochism an element in all of this? I mean, while you were doing it, did it occur to you that this was actually a form of self-harm? Yeah, of course. I, I thought of it as a, as a kind of a literary suicide, you know, where it's, where it's, and that comes by being totally free and something also is to, you can, you can just do that and, and there is a description of, you know, that I'm cutting myself in the face. And that's, they have some of the same feeling, writing some of the things in the book, you know. But it, it's also very, very difficult. It isn't masochistic in any direct sense because it is, it is written, it is making something into a novel, you know. Mm -hmm. But it still is, of course, a destructive thing. And I was, my father, he was drinking and it, think that was kind of a slow suicide. Mm -hmm. And I think he led an inauthentic life. I think he, you know, and then somehow stopped to drink and then was catch up in it and then just couldn't get away from it. And I too led a very inauthentic life and I just wanted, you know, to get away from everything. And what do you mean inauthentic life? It wasn't my life. I was, you know, was in something that wasn't mine. I was just doing what I should do and what other people told me and was expected from me. Uh, and that position, being that frustrated, mean that I had nothing to lose, you know, nothing to lose. I could just write about, I can just write about it, you know, and that's, I did. And it is destructive, but still it is different from drinking yourself to death, because it is creating something, there is something coming out yeah. of it. Yeah. And, and that's a good thing with writing, is that it is making something, you know. And I have a theory, almost all writers I know of are some way or another, you know, wrecked, fucked, destroyed, something is broken. Mm -hmm. Why should you write if that was not so? I mean, it takes so much to write, why should you bother? And I think what the thing is, is nothing like the question I got that if, that this is kind of a therapeutic thing mm -hmm. to do, but it's not, but it's this act of writing is, to create something, and that's a good thing. And it's kind of the opposite of destruction, opposite of destroying, you know? 
Well, the books are a sort of miracle, and people have responded, as, as, as everybody knows, in a massive way to them. I wonder uh, to what extent you feel that literature, the value of literature, is that it helps people to live their lives. Does that have any meaning to you? What I experienced with this book when it came out in, in Norway, it was, was, you know, it was everywhere and everybody read it. And first I think this was kind of a scandal thing that started it. But, but in the end I think what this book did was giving people a way of talking about things that you should not talk about, you know. But everybody has experienced it, but you should not talk about it. But through this book you can, you can do that. Mm -hmm. And when people, you know, approach me and, and want to talk about this book, they have one sentence about the book. It's a good book or brilliant book or... And then rest is about them and their lives, you know? And, it's, um, and, it, and the topics are the topics that are taboo. I mean, wanting your father dead, you know, shaking your, chit, your child and all those things in the book. I think that's, that's what it did. Well, now it's over, but then the, it was then. There is know? a sort of identification, surely. I mean, the audience will be better judges of this than anybody, but there is an element often in literature where, and it's quite rare actually to have it so acutely on the page, where, for example, people can imagine a taboo, even in their own lives, they would feel guilty for saying, I love my wife, but she gets on my nerves, and I can often imagine in the afternoon just, you know, not being with her, and not being with the children, and being able to do my work, and fuck it, you know, mm. everybody knows that feeling, but they would feel guilty to, sit, to admit it to themselves very often, so to see it written down might represent a sort of release for people, that not only with one example, but several examples of that sort of thing, a page, yeah. you know, over a long series of books. Do you, do you know what I mean? That it is a sort of, the identification question seems to me a live one when it comes to these, to, to, to this particular project. Yeah. For me, it was very liberating because just, is it possible to do that? Can I write that? Yeah, I can do that, you know? And it's, it felt good and, and, um, and it's true. You know? Do you think it's affected the way you live your daily life now? I wouldn't ask you to talk about your <laughs> domestic arrangements, every uh, aspect of them, but what about just the daily running of your life? Is it dominated now? by having been the author of these books? No, it is, it's not, it's not. This is kind of a free zone, the life, you know. But the book changed me, I think. Yeah. Yeah, it did. But it didn't change them? No. You know, when I, I wrote book two, that's about relationship between me and my wife, Linda, yeah. you know, and, and, and that there are, I, I say all the things that I think in a relationship, you know this is like this, you know but you can't say it. If, it, if you can't say it, you know, then it's in, you know, then it's established as a kind of a fact. And I did say all those things about our relationship. And when she um, read the book, she cried and, but she didn't want to change anything in the book, but she wanted, to, we have to have a discussion, we have to talk about our lives, you know. And realizing that a relationship is based upon lies, and lies and lies and ideals and you know thoughts of how it should be and that's the only way to have a relationship really if you don't lie it you know it collapses and it's true and it's it and and it did with, with us it collapsed and then we kind of get back into the lies again where we are now it's a brilliant negotiation with such a crucial thing 
in everyday life that. I mean, it's philosophical, but it's also practical. I mean, Ibsen uh, talked about the saving lie. Yeah. You know, how to live yeah. without lies is an is, is a impossible thing to contemplate. But yet, by telling the truth, one would imagine that your life was just a nightmare. Yeah. But you think not. I mean, you can get through it in the sense that maybe you've just got very understanding and intelligent people around you. It'd be hard to imagine many writers surviving it. You know, there was that thing of Evelyn Waters where, where he said, if there's a writer born in the family, the family's finished. Yeah. But you no, can go on. Yeah. And as a Norwegian writer said something like, every writer should have a wife or every but but you know nobody should be, be married to a writer or something like that and it's for, um, the, for the sake of their own mental health yeah, and yeah. survival i must agree um i'm coming to you in a second uh, i know that um at the very end of the project you said in a sense you expressed a sense of freedom that that was you done done yeah. as an author of yeah. course you will write again and you are writing again yeah um, does the shadow of this achievement fall very long over what you're trying to write now, or, or can you just move on? It's very ironic, because I, you know, as every writer, have, have ambitions. I want to write something, you know, great or, or, or very good. And this was never the thing. This was the thing I have, you know, to get through before <laughs> I could do something good. Yeah. And, uh, and now I'm, I'm here, back again, I have to write something good. And that's, you know, that's impossible. The only way to write something is you, you get behind yourself in a way. Yeah. And you don't think this is, this is just what I'm doing now and, and then. It's a strange problem to have. I mean, you're a relatively young writer. I say that with glee because you're exactly the same age as me. But um, <laughs> you are relatively young as a writer, 46. And so one would imagine that your best work's ahead of you. Um, presumably you, having closed, yeah, closed yourself down as a writer, really believe that there are good books to come. But I think this is, um, I had the same problem with my first book uh, when it came out. It was kind of a minor success, but it still fucked up everything for me. Yeah. And it took four years to try to write before I could write again. And then the next book came out and the same thing happened, it took four years. And those four years was trying to get away every, you know, ex um, expectation, mm. every thought of what people expected or what the readers expected. And you have to do that mm. uh, to be able to write. Maybe what you need is a dramatic failure to get you back on track. Yeah, and I have, I think I, you know, I'm, I have, I have <laughs> that. I have the makings of I'm, it. I'm, 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 I'm doing that now. Let yeah. me open up to the audience because I know that you'll have questions and we're just about, we've got about 15 minutes or so and our friend Claire will take the famous roving mic. Hello. Um, just want to say, first off, thank you for the books. I really, really like them. Um, I'm just near the start of the second volume, so there's probably lots, it may be that the question is answered later on in the books, but you, you've just started talking in, in those about, um, kind of, a, I think a friend of yours who's kind of teaching you about anti-liberal cultures and so on and so yeah. forth, and I was wondering if that was just ideas you were toying with or if you were advocating some kind of political expression of those, and how that linked to the, the title of the, the sequence. Yeah, I see, uh, yeah. You're thinking of anti-liberal culture. You're thinking of Germany. And Not necessarily. I'm, I'm or asking you. <laughs> no. no. The book is called uh, Mein Kampf, which is Mein Kampf in, in, in German. 
And when I started out, this was not a kind of a political statement or had nothing to do with that, you know. Um, but then I had to read Mein Kampf uh, because of the title, I, I, I feel I had to. And um, yeah, I remember I took, brought it with me on a plane. I thought I, because I, had, I was writing all the time, you know, and it was a plane to Iceland. I thought I could have an hour, I could read it. And then I realized, no, it is not possible. It would be panic around if you read Mein Kampf. <laughs> and this is the only book I can think of that has this aura, you know. It is evil in itself. It is, the, you know, really, really bad. And then you have to read it and have to write about it. So in the last book, it's a lot about po politics. And it's, it's also in there a discussion about, you know, the right wing. There's about 400 pages, isn't there? It is 400 pages about... So basically about Adolf Hitler and his, his way being from he was a child until he, uh, he published My Struggle. But it still is a, it's a lot about uh, the political scene in Germany in the 20s, whether where, I mean, I mean, there were people on the right of, of Nazism, really, and, and very theoretically, you know. And Ernst, Ernst Jünger is very important there. And I found those ideas very, very interesting and stimulating. And because nothing had happened, you know, and nothing had, you didn't know what these ideas were, you know, and there is so many things that kind of are just, we can't go there, we can't look there, we can't see in that direction, and I, I find just the notion of, you know, it's like we have defined ourselves, I mean, totally against what's happened, you know, and, and this is, uh, going through that is a kind of a mirror to our own time and it's the only place in the book where it's not about me but it is about you know another one and i tried to just open this up and there is no but i got you know in in sweden uh, i have this uh, kind of right-wing image and i'm compared to terrorists and and, um, and it's really really awful because it's nothing in the book it's a deeply humanistic project you know but i I still want to look at things with open eyes, without, what's the word, prejudice? Prejudice? Yeah. Hi there. Um, just wondering, in, I'm not quite sure we're halfway through the kind of sequence, when you're talking about embarking on the project uh, of writing these books, um, you talk about kind of repulsion to fiction, um, or towards novels as fiction. Um, and I'm just wondering whether, kind of, partly whether you still feel that way, whether you still feel repelled to some extent by fiction that, that is just story, just narrative, um, or whether you think the way forward for the novel perhaps is more a combination of truth and fiction, or the inability to divide between the two, between fiction and, and truth, as it were. Yeah. You, you're asking about the relationship to fiction now? How are... Yeah. Um, yeah, kind of how you feel about it now. Kind of, you put down what you said in the book, but yeah, if, if you still have a kind of are still kind of repelled by a lot of narrative and a lot of the, what the novel represents now, or a lot of um, fiction as it is, or yeah. how you think it's progressing? I think this, is, this was kind of deeply personal for me when I, when I experienced it. And, and, and as a novelist, I almost you know, puked when I read novels, or, or the thought of writing yeah. novels. Yeah. Uh, and that was a very strong thing, and I, I, or, only I did read uh, non-fiction, you know, biographies and, and, and stuff. And I, I don't really know why, but I think at that time I was very, wanted very much to, 
represent reality as good as possible, and you, that's the obligation to all novelists, you know. And I, um, and I think everybody tries to do that. There is some element in nar narration that I really can't have, you know, and it's the same in the narration in news stories, because it makes everything the same, you know. If there is an airplane crash, it's described in exactly the same way, and it happens over and over and over again, and it's like the whole world is appearing in that way, in that same way. Yeah. And, but it, the world isn't, you know, it's, it's very, very different, very distinct, very unique. The, the, those kind of things, uh, I think, made, made me want to break free of the form. But when you have broke free of a form, it's another form, and then you can't use that, and then you have to find something else. But I'm not interested in fiction, non-fiction. That's, that's the way it's yeah. told, it's the form that I'm kind of interested in. I write exactly the same way if I write about myself or if I invent something. But it's more, you know, the narration, the plot. And it's even worse in films, you know, if you say film, it is just like a machine that puts up the same again and again. And they know where they should pull for you to, to, to feel something, you know. And the master of that is, uh, he's a genius, that's, um, you know, Lars von Trier. And you see that film with Björk, you know, it's an awful film and it's so manipulative and it's so cynical, but still everybody was crying at the end. And I was, was watching it and I think, and it, it, the film even goes silent in the end, so you can hear the, only the crying in the last five minutes. And he knows how to manipulate, and, and, but he's a genius, so it's okay with him, but it's still it's the same thing, you know. And you don't want to be manipulated and don't want to manipulate if you are writing novels or reading novels. Thank you. Um, at the beginning of book one, there you describe as a child seeing a face appearing in the sea on television. And then, um, much later in your apartment in, in Sweden, <coughs> you're reminded of this face um, by a face that appears to you f in the floorboards, um, the face of Christ. There's also at the beginning of book one um, a description of your own face which, which is repeated at the end of uh, book two. Um, there is the face of your father in both life and death, the cutting of your own face and Rembrandt on the face. I wondered if there was some kind of thematic intent here of a novelistic kind to develop a notion, a motif of the face as a kind of inquiry into memory or something. Um, that's a good question uh, because it's it's true. It is like it's still a lot of faces, and, and there is a connection. But but I I, I don't plan books, and I don't uh, I, I don't know what I'm going to write, and I and it's not always that I remember what I have been writing, you know. So it's a coincidence that Rembrandt is there, and that's the faces. But of course, it's not a coincidence. It's something else that you know creates those kind of patterns, and that's the writing process. The writing process is a, is a way to direct, you, a way to see something, and you go in that direction. And I mean, there's a lot of things in these books that I don't write about in my life. And I have not, it's not like I decided not to write about that, but it's just, you know, it's like the, the path of, of writing goes there and there and there and there and directs it. And it's very subconsciously, it is, um, yeah, one of my favorite quotes are about writing is, 
Lawrence Durrell and he says you to write or to make art is to set yourself a goal and then you go there in your sleep and it is like that I think and uh, and those kind of patterns is very difficult you know to think you know for yourself okay I will have this motive and that motive but it has to be just it just comes you know um, but the, the, the image in the sea, it was like this. I was writing and I saw on the floor and I saw a Christ. And then I remembered, you know, that face in, which I saw in the sea when I was, I was a kid. And then I started to write about that. Uh, and that's how this book is written. Hello. Um, I wanted to know about your process of redrafting because you talk about writing thousands of words a day. And obviously there's a rawness to it and so how do you go about editing the work when you've finished a draft? Um, yeah, the first book is edited like you know a normal book so that's much what's more... What's a normal book? What's your normal book? <laughs> no but I mean I sat down with my editor and he, he said okay you could what if you take away this what if you write a bridge there what if you you know you fix it and, and make it, try to make it, you know, into, to shape it. But then we realized that this isn't a project like that. So book two is almost unedited. I mean, it's almost like it is written. But the point is, it's done while writing. It's done like this. If I write something and it's, this is the wrong direction, I just take it out and then I write. And, and it just is like it's written. But to do that, I failed for four years before, you know, and it's kind of, try to get into that state of mind where you can write the many pages every day and it, it's right in, in some way or another. But you know, the, the style and, and this way of thinking make the books very uneven, very, very much bad things in it and very much good thing in it and it's no logic to it and it's... Um, yeah, I think that could be very embarrassing for me to see that it is like this, but it's the only way to have a certain naivety, for instance, present, because that's the first thing you take out. Oh, this is so naive, I need to take it out. But it does something to a text. If it is naive, in a way, you know, it's a bit stupid. Or, But then I have to... My editor wanted to take out the first 10 or 12 pages of the book, because they... And I, I used a book one, is that? A book one, yeah, and that's... I think I spent many weeks in writing those. I tried to write as good as I could, and I wanted it to be perfect, you know? And then my editor said to me that this is, you can't do that, this is good. And then it kind of fall down, and then the novel start in something completely different. And he said, you have to take it out, and it will make the book better. And I said, no, no, I have to have it, because this is the only place in the book where I know, I know this is good, so people can see, oh, he can write, I mean, he is, he is good. And this isn't a joke, this is true. This is kind of, it, yeah, it has to be like that. You have to show off something, and, and it's the same in book three. It's almost no reflection, it's almost only a child's view of the world. And it's, you know, it's an idiot's view of the world because in some certain way it is. And it's very hard to... It's okay, it's easy to write it, but it's very hard to publish it if you are very, you know, aware of what people think of you and so on. Hi. Um, I have a sort of simple but 
question that is meant as a bit of a provocation. Um, how do you feel about the fact that the huge success of the book, books, means that it's very likely that your biography is going to be written? Um, I, when I did this book, I, have to, I understood I have to give up ownership of myself. That was, you know, the consequence of it. The newspapers could write whatever they want to write. And they said, but you write about others so we can write about you, you know? And I realized it's, I can't, you know, I can't control it. They, or they have to write exactly what they, what they want. And I think in a biography or something like that, it's, it's the same thing. And, um, and since I have four kids, the, all, and both the parents are writers, the odds are, you know, quite good that some, some of them will write something one day. I mean, that was, <laughs> I don't know, but I, I, I don't think about these things. But I think I, I can't control anything of it. Hello, thank you. Um, I wanted to ask you a question about fear. Um, I'm really, really glad you didn't take the first bit of the first book out because I think it's brilliant. And the kind of absolute terror of this little boy I just found very affecting. And you spoke a little bit about how you feared your dad. Yeah. And I wondered, is fear something that you just kind of have to live with and write almost in spite of, in spite of fear? Or do you use fear in your writing process somehow? Um, that's a very good, good question. Um, no, I think in the writing process you have to be fearless. I think you have, can't have fear. You can't have any restrictions. I think that's how it is. But it could be create an enormous energy if you confront something you fear for real in writing, you know? And, um, and that, I think you should do that if you write. You should go for the places where it really hurts or where something is at stake and where it is about life and death. Then you know it's going to be good. Uh, and fear is a kind of a signal to you that this is, this really matter, you know? This is, I'm closing into something important, I think. It's such a basic reaction to things, to fear something. So I think, yeah. Thank you. Thanks very much, and thank you, Carl Over. Um, it just remains to say thank you to Carl for coming here and for uh, offering such an illuminating uh, insight into his work. And uh, I want to thank the London Review Bookshop for uh, putting this on, and I hope that um, you'll continue to support the bookshop, uh, fabulous as it is. Um, please put your hands together for Carl Over. Thank you for joining us for this London Review Bookshop event. For more, visit our website at www.londonreviewbookshop.co.uk or search for the London Review Bookshop on iTunes.